Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I am Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the net where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. And my guest this week definitely stands at the intersection of all of those. Mothyur Rahman is a spiritual activist in all senses of those words. He's a founder of New Economy Law, a legal innovation lab that seeks to strengthen civil resilience for precarious futures. He's an alumnus of Schumacher College, and he's a founder of XR Muslims and a really deep and profound XR activist. As you'll hear, he has worked on some of the key environmental challenges of our time, offering crucial inputs to the ways that governments frame their responses. And above all of this, he's a heartfelt advocate for the rights of people and the planet, in the understanding that these two can only ever work together. Our conversation took us deep into the bedrock of being, touching on places that were clearly very profoundly moving for Mothier. Our sharing of the result of this feels to me a real testament to the integrity of his spirit, to his passion, and to his clear intent to create a space where the stories that move us most can be felt by us all. This was a really moving podcast to record. It roamed over areas that matter to everybody, at all levels and to all people. So, people of the podcast, please do welcome Mothir Rahman. So, Mothir Rahman, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, let's take a step back because you've done so many things, and there is a thread that runs through them all of integrity and a sense of spirit to me when I read what you write and hear what you've done. But you were born in a city and Tell us a little bit about how Mothier now came to be, where you started, what your origins were, and how your motivations arose. Mm, thank you. Well, yeah, I was born in, in Leeds, um, a park called Beeston, quite an economically deprived area. Um, my father and my mum came up from Bangladesh in, in the 60s. I don't think they actually wanted to stay at the time, but these things happened, don't they? Accidental gods, accidents and having children, and then sort of you engage, and then you start, you know, time moves on. And then the thread that started for me was this love of literature. And I remember at 13 reading Charlotte Bronte's Wuthering Heights, and that just opening a whole new world for me <laughs> of, of this sense of what it means to be human. I think that was right. what I became alive to. And that thread, when I you know, went to university, did English literature, when I came back, I was teaching in Japan, and um, somebody mentioned something about uh, law as an option, and I thought, well, I'll give it a go and see see what it's like to be, you know, because I wanted to ground myself, I think. I wanted to ground myself, I felt I was a bit too dreamy, and I wanted to find something that was a bit more pragmatic and real and see whether I could engage with that level. And it was a bit of a huge tussle with myself, with my the way my brain works to actually ground into that way of thinking and um but to find at the end i had these tools or this way 
Um, after this big struggle, I found that quite uh, liberating and ended up being a lawyer in, in London, quite a, a sort of large global law firm, was wanted to work in human rights and ended up doing an area called planning law, which is around quite, you know, this public and private sphere about the balance of different rights, but the public right maybe to acquire land and the private right to want to maintain a sense of their own identity or the town's identity. So looking at all these different rights and... Uh, we, starting with, with that environmental law, though, I remember one of the partners at work, when I said I wanted to work in environmental law, passing me this leaflet saying, well, why don't you go to this conference? And it turned out to be this conference about something very alternative. I don't think he quite realised. It was something called wild law. Um, and that was a very ecocentric perspective of law. And we ended up communing with, uh, in the woods and meditating. And I was like, wow, this is an <laughs> interesting type of one. It connected me to this kind of like what it means to be human this story and this way of, uh, of engaging outside of the kind of normative understanding of law. And that, I guess, brought this, I wouldn't have called myself spiritual at that point, I think. I was more humanistic, but broadening to an arts perspective, like what it means to be human. But I found myself going down this spiral of like not having any time to, to, to myself and trying to work and just everything getting on top of me and, and trying to maintain this artifice, what I felt was an artifice self. Like I didn't feel like I really was a lawyer. I felt I was this illusionary self I had to maintain. And hmm. um, something inside of me was dying. That's what it felt like. Yeah, just some personal things as well that all came into a crunch and it led to this kind of paralysis. And uh, I mean, it's quite a vulnerable thing to start talking, you know, to, to bring the sense. But I think it's really important but because of the precarities of our lives at the moment and the way that we get shamed around this. So my journey is beginning to sense how the system actually creates a lot of this within ourselves and we take it upon ourselves as if it, we, as if it's us. And so this is partly why I want to speak about it, about this paralysis, this breakdown, this, this sense of like not having any purpose anymore and not being able to touch what was really meaningful, anything in myself. And uh, um, trying to find medication that would support, that was the functional way that you meant to deal with it, not able to speak at work because of the shame that you know, you've got to you know, carry on this sort of individual struggle and the story was in my head a lot. But it came to the point where I was, it felt like I'd given up all the options that, you know, I'd talked to friends, I'd been to doctors, I'd tried medication, nothing was getting rid of this overwhelming pain inside me. And so I felt like I was at the abyss, at sort of this edge of like, I didn't want to carry on at that time of really deep pain of not knowing where else to go. And ringing this friend, saying, I have nowhere else to go. I don't know, you know. And she said, have you ever felt like praying before? I remember those words because I was like, I, why would I want to pray to something? Like, you know, the pr prayer to me was religious and not, um, I was in a very different field. And I, I, I couldn't, this sense of wanting the truth. I felt Western liberalism was all about that. I want the truth and everything that I'd been given through my education was this truth and this praying was outside of that. And yet when I put the phone down, it stayed with, I couldn't, I was at this edge of like, if I have to pray, that means letting go of, of this idea that of this truth. And I didn't want to give up the idea because that was where I was. I couldn't sincerely, I couldn't find myself to sincerely give it up. But the more that I said I can't give it up, the more I was going to have this dark path towards, mm. like, I've got nowhere else to go. So it was like this a crisis of who I, who I was in that moment. And I remember the giving up 
I don't know anymore. I, I prayed as sincerely as I could to God, to Allah, to whatever it is there. Can I, I, need, I need help. I can't do this anymore. And that was a letting go and an opening. I didn't recognize that at the time, but uh, slowly things, be, something changed in the way that the events began coming towards me. That's all I can, how, how I can explain it. Like bumping into a friend who I hadn't seen for 12 years on uh, Hampstead Heath you know, doing this uh, uh, this kind of event, um, sort of outdoor dance event. Um, and she had become a yoga teacher and, uh, and she had something really gentle about her. And she sat me down and said, can you tell me your story? Just a bit like what you just said, no. And something in the way that she said it was just an unraveling, like it allowed me to a space to begin to explore my thoughts rather than being told, oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do X or Y or Z? And it was just an opening, an invitation, so gentle that it, it allowed me to go on this journey. And I went to a number of places with her, a place called Butterfield, mm. where I had this really intense experience of of being held by something that kind of said, through this suffering, can you recognize you are being held and I have been held at all times. And it was this yeah, joy of coming to that place. But it, it was such a, an experience that it, it lit a, a flame in me. Like, I can't, I have to understand what this, uh, I have to follow this. Yeah, what, whatever, it, what, it, what it is, what is outside of the, the knowledge that I've been given or understood the world to be this kind of Newtonian world that within this more subjective frame, the world comes to meet you halfway in some mysterious way. And that, that's been my journey since then, this kind of spiritual, trying to bring love into law, I think, was, was how the message came to me, how I began to integrate those different aspects. Um, I, I can just mention how that, because <laughs> it's quite interesting, that love into law aspect. It was because, uh, I don't know if you know of Polly Higgins' work. Um, she's another lawyer. We've talked about her on the podcast, right. so yes. Yeah, and she passed away just over a year ago. And her work is, was amazing, uh, what she did. And I remember meeting her while I was still a lawyer. She just about started on her own path, the first time I met her. It was in Gaia House in London, and uh, she was talking about how her experience of who was the lawyer for the earth um, and how then she, that moved her into her path. And I went, oh, wouldn't it be great to be able to do that? Not thinking that I could, um, you know, do, uh, you know, I was stuck on my own path at that time of being this lawyer. And then this experience sort of opened a different space. And I and I was at a place called Embercombe doing some voluntary work there. And um, Polly had come to Totnes to, to give a talk and... Uh, I said, you know, why don't you come to Embercombe to, uh, to bring what you're doing to this place? And so I facilitated a workshop with her. At that workshop, she talked about this story of how love is at the centre of her work. And I said, how would you define love? Being a kind of lawyer. And she said, oh, I don't know. How, how would you define love? I said, oh, I don't know either. And it was almost like a, an invitation to carry something. So I said, oh, that's going to be my, my inquiry. How do, I, how do you bring love into law? Um, so that's where it began. Yes, and I think we just found the title for the podcast. As with everything you've just said, it changes our perception of what law is. It's not something that I would generally associate with the concept of loving, and yet it's integral to who we are and what we do and the structures of the way that we function as a society. So I'm thinking your parents are both from Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. 
when you prayed to a God, you were praying to Allah. So you had been brought up to some degree within a Muslim structure, mm. but you stepped away from that. Am I right? Yeah. The Muslim structure was, was the fabric of my uh, childhood life. It was in everything. How we chose biscuits, looking for ingredients, no animal fats to, you know, it was, uh, it was just a way of life. And um, my father passed away when I was very young, around six. And uh, I guess also the education that my, we were having, my brothers were older than me, and rather than going to the mosque, uh, my brother would take us to the library very early in rebellion. The Islam that we were given at the time was very strict, very, you have to follow this path and don't ask any questions because, you know, what, you know, we asked, we'd ask, why would you, why would you have to read in Arabic? We wouldn't be listened to, we wouldn't be given a proper answer, just that you have to follow this. And so that brings an entire kind of like, what I think is the truth of like how we have to act, like the truth of like wanting to have agency. And for me, free, you know, this might help my own learning of like what it means to have free will, what does our conscience and our responsibility give towards us as human beings. So, you know, the, the structure, and this again is about law, like the law, it almost becomes ossified, and there is a real source to it that is in all of us, and that's the law that I, I the spirit of the law. Um, but, yeah, coming to, to that Islamic upbringing, I think, because yeah, just by the age of 15, 16, we had quite a turbulent childhood, and so I was, by that age, I was on my just with my siblings a lot, and so we were learning a lot that I was outside of the sphere of the family. And if, if the family sphere had continued, maybe it would be different. But that gave a, a much wider perspective that carried me along a different path. Because you set up XR Muslims, so so now you do identify as a Muslim, having not done, having learned the power of prayer, having found that. We are held through our suffering and the world does come to meet us halfway. Where would you say you are in terms of your spiritual focus now? Thanks, yeah. I remember just um, the Occupy movement as being a huge um, uh, influence on me. And I remember the, the meditation tent. That was the big thing for me, that there was a meditation space. I was just this at the beginning of this kind of turning for me when I was mentioning earlier about this prayer. And so seeing the meditation tent under St. Paul's Cathedral, I was like, wow. And it was a bit of a mess in the tent. And I was I asked whether I could look after the meditation tent. And I was given permission to, to look after it. So I was there in this tent. And I remember seeing, you know, the tent had its altar. And it had, it didn't have that, it had a Buddha at the center. And I had this heart block. I thought, that may be, this is this, the, the idea of love being at the center. So I put that and put my mom's icon of Allah there. And there was a, a Christ symbol as well. So trying to see that the heart is at the centre of these, these different kinds of spiritual traditions. At the time, Islam was still, for me, uh, something about my my mother had rather than that I was taking on at that time. I still had really strong sort of reactions against it. And I was reading a book called The Places That Scare You by Pima Chodron, so I was much more on a kind of shamanic Buddhist route. And this book, The Places That Scare You, was saying that go inwards and wherever there is tension, wherever something arises that is tension, that is the, the boundary which you need to, to move beyond and that scares us and it causes vulnerability. That's the journey to go on. And I remember that was the time when somebody said, but I wanted to go to visit, uh, to visit a mosque. I, by the third time I thought, okay, this feels like a, a barrier, a really strong one, and it, rather than just a, uh, a value there. Exploring that mosque, 
was a massive, uh, yeah, it caused it because I saw the mosque was very different to how I remembered as a child and my childhood projections were actually what I was envisaging and the reality is something else uh, and it was good to be reminded of that. And, and, and then I began recognizing that maybe the story of Islam is also something that I'm carrying that hasn't been me, but I've been given. That was a journey that came up from Schumacher of this trying to find um, the separation between Western hegemonic values as it was given to me, which I thought was universal, hmm. to say, is this just a story within which I'm swimming and thinking it's universal? And to use um, my um, ancestry in Islam and my Bengali culture as the kind of tool by which to uncover the boundary of that. And for me, yeah, that's been my way of understanding decoloniality, of trying to yeah, separate the different stories and, and finding in Islam a, a beauty, a beauty to it and um, that I hadn't um, noticed and, and Sufism being the particular route that um, I, I, I began my journey down. So can you give us an example of something, because I'm really interested in this idea of hegemonic stories and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that evolve. Within the story, particularly the story of Sufism, I'm woefully ignorant, so I don't really understand the different subsections. Of, of any of the major religions, to be honest. So what is it, can you tell us what is it that makes Sufism what it is? And is there a story that has evolved for you from your childhood to now that would give us a sense of the the life that you feel now in the sense of spirit that this gives you? Mm. So the book that came to, uh, when, I, um, when I was... Um Exploring um, the website, because I have uh, um, St. has Center for Peace and Reconciliation, they, they look at many different traditions, and there was um, uh, Kabi Helminski was giving a talk, and he's a Sufi teacher, and then Levi, or the tradition of uh, follows uh, Rumi, and he written a book called Sufism as a, as a Way to Presence. For me, yeah, that sense, what, what does presence mean? And I remember seeing the first word, and he, the first uh, page, and it talked about will. And, it talk, and, and that, I think that for me, because I thought of Islam, and I knew Islam was about surrender, about letting go, and I could see the connection to that to Buddhism, about, and, about letting go and, and surrender, um, opening up. But this idea of will, I thought, what has Islam to do with the will? Because I thought that was the Western. I see that as the struggle of bringing your will to Hmm. I met him at, the, at a retreat and I asked him this question because I wanted to understand, see what kind of answer he would give. And he said something like, um, and I felt quite profoundly moved by his answer, he said, there is something that we bring our will towards and then it comes to a place where we then see the letting go, um, uh, it unfolds into a letting go. And, um, and I could see how that had unfolded for me in my own life. So it was an experiential understanding of how, so for example, with the prayer moment of, of will moving to letting go uh, and there's this kind of yeah this this journey and the connection to me i guess within the collective journey of law or within um the western hegemony is this story that maybe you could say built out from western liberalism rousseau and um, those ideas in the 17th century I loved at the time of J.S. Mill. Thomas Hardy was talking about J.S. Mill and, uh, and Jude the Obscure about this sense of the rights of the individual, the rights to liberty, freedom, and the freedom from 
that's the sense that the Western liberal tradition has come from, the freedom from, but the freedom too, or the responsibility aspect, the collective, the story of, of letting go of your individual towards the, what is it that gives the sense of belonging, that there's this kind of movement. I, th- I feel that's the other side of the, the coin and the collective aspect. And um, everything keeps shifting back into individualism. This is how I see it, because that story of, the, the, you could say the institutionally imaginary of um, the West is so strong towards this freedom, sense of freedom from and liberty as liberty of the individual mm. and separates the community from the individual rather than seeing you as an aspect of the community. Yes, and you wrote very movingly about that in Resurgence. I'd like to come back to that in a moment. But before that, I'm curious, because you've obviously come from quite a Buddhist focus path. You were reading Pema Chodron. You had that sense of surrender and letting go. What is it now about Islam? I'm aware, and I'm sure you're aware, that Aldous Huxley discussed the perennial philosophy, that thing that he saw as being core to all of the major religions, the the kind of common ground behind the cultural overlays that, that tend to get layered on. What is it that Islam gives you now that, that say, Buddhism or the perennial philosophy hadn't given, if anything? This is, yeah, me, me thinking aloud. So the perennial philosophy, if you want to look at a meta level, I guess I, I see it as like, it's still following that. What can we abstract from, as universal from the embodied elements of different religions? So it's still following this meta story of abstraction brings us to universality rather than embodiment and uh, moving into uh, lived experience can also be a way towards understanding what it means to be human. So the perennial is trying to uh, move out and, and, and find the abstraction because of that meta story. I find the same stories, you could say, similar stories in Islam and Sufism around, say, surrender. There, there, there are elements that say, for, in Islam, it says, I, I made you all into tribes so that you may know one another, not that you may deceive one another. There's parts of the Quran which, this is about learning to be with one another. And then it says, all life is communities. All life are communities like you, the, the, from the flower to the, to the bird flying. Th- these communities, and I could find, I need to find the exact wording in the Quran because the... the, the the, the wording is 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 important, but that that's the general gist of of those um, that these communities are, and that's the egocentric perspective that all communities that we have given privilege, and so that's also different because it, it's not centered on the human being actually. It doesn't have the, the strength of dominion that maybe is in the come out, coming out of the the Christian hmm. tradition, although they're now talking about stewardship, but it's still something there for me around uh, this idea that we are all communities and we live in diff- at different levels and we discern different aspects of the sacred in and through our lived experience. And then there's something in the Quran that is in, runs throughout it, and it is people uh, use your reason to understand what, Allah is this this universal reality beyond the projections that we give. Because another name of Allah is Haq, 
al-haq. Al-haq means truth. It just means the, the reality of the truth beyond the uh, reality that we think is real, which you could say is the perennial philosophy as well, but it's the thing that lies beyond the finger pointing. And this idea that we can look at the world and understand so that science isn't really separate. For me, science isn't separate either from Islam. Islam has got a strong scientific tradition, I did, you know, and it goes through different phases, of course, depending upon the institutions by which a specific spirituality is being conveyed, different times, the institutions by which um, it was being conveyed. So, you know, the richness of the scientific tradition to understand the world that we are in and to observe and therefore come closer to the sacred. And uh, this connection between uh, reason and heart, I think, is is, is also really important because I, I feel that the Western tradition has had a schism between these aspects in some way, Cartesian kind of separation, whereas the values, if you go to the source, outside of that in, the, in Islam and traditions that have not been from the West, doesn't have that separation so much between reason and heart and seeing that emotion is a form of knowledge that brings us closer. Brilliant. Yes. Emotion is a form of knowledge that brings us closer. There is a part in the Quran which says that something about the, the heart within the mind, bringing these two aspects together. Yeah, so that everything arises from that. And what is it that sets Sufism apart from other forms? Because you're all reading the Quran. Is it in the interpretation of specific passages? Or following a particular teacher? This is this is entirely my ignorance. I'm just really curious. I've been ignorant as well of Sufism. I mean, it's, it's funny... Because the way I grew up, I mean, you know, my, my parents come from, you know, an agricultural part of uh, Bangladesh in the 60s. And, you know, a very rural framing and swept into this country, you know, the, the huge cultural shift that they had to go and see their children, you know, going through um, a massive shift. But for me, to my parents, you can imagine it's almost like history is being like squeezed. So the Islam that they are communicating to me is an Islam that is very conservative, very... This has, has how it has to be done in this form, and so I grew up thinking Sufism was not even Islam. That you know, that's how I was taught it. Or oh, Sufism is you know, it's not Islam really. It's not a real, not the real Islam. That's uh, it's just a kind of offshoot that's gone a bit um, gone wrong. And so I didn't really even question. You know, you begin to question things that you don't even know you meant you you can question. They're like things that you don't know you don't know that kind of area, and you and then you begin to look into it and go, oh, actually. What is Sufism? And, you know, I went on a journey to Bosnia, actually, uh, a couple of years ago, because this is the heart, you could say, of, of much of the uh, ancestral wounding in, in Europe, you know, when Islam was spreading and there was a big, you know, I haven't got my history quite right, but like there was, you know, I think it got as far as Vienna and Spain had been taken over. And, but Bosnia is, uh, you know, the Bosnian Muslims, you know, the, a lot of them were Sufi Muslims. And uh, so there's a strong tradition of, I wanted to understand what an indigenous Islam, that's European in a way. What form has it taken? You know, they, they read the Quran, they, they sing a lot. There's a lot of chanting, there's much more what's called zikir. Zikir is, um, <laughs> this is another, if I can just relate this, because I think it's quite funny, maybe it relates to something in Christianity as well. But when I, because I was brought up in a, in a comprehensive and, and, and uh, we used to sing Christian hymns, and, um, you know, I, I loved the songs, and one of the songs was dance, dance, wherever you may be, I am the Lord of the dance, said he. 
And one of the teachers wanted us to keep moving to it and moving and moving. And the other teacher was like, don't, you can't move, sit still. <laughs> and, we were, and the other teacher, no, no, move, you want to move. And so it's these different worldviews of like what it means to, you know, how to engage with our spirituality. And so the zikir is the, uh, is the saying of the name of Allah. And it's also a movement as well. And in now you can see in the mainstream Islam that the zikir has become very like, oh, no, that's a, that's sort of this alternative thing. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. And so there's been a quite a sort of cut off. But zikir is very central to Sufism. So you, to me, they're just different limbs of different ways of experiencing um, an encounter with the sacred that you're searching for this long of a direct experience through the form of your body. So there's quite a mystical element to Sufism that might not be there in some of the more traditionalist, hardcore, read the book, say the stuff versions. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that. I'm still not with myself even quite clear what makes mysticism mysticism and what makes other forms of spirituality um, this other form, because I feel there's a schism there that when I think about spiritual ecology, for example, a lot of the times it doesn't cede ground to the traditional forms of, of religion. And, you know, it's been a big teaching for me to try to work with this rather than see it as separate. So, like, uh, like spirituality and religion, that they are sourced in the same love but come forth through the human in different ways. And, I mean, a big teaching for me, I mentioned wild monastics with Wild Church, who, and Sam Wernham, who's a trainer to be a minister in Dartington in Tot- near Totnes. And she mentioned to me about her journey through paganism and back to Christianity to find her roots. And it was seeing that and understanding, you know, she became a kind of a role model for me to so okay, if I'm going down this, this path, what can I bring from my own roots? Right, yes. She saw within Western, the church as well, having a very strong mystical roots, tradition and roots as well, and trying to uncover that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So. I feel we could spend the rest of the hour really delving down into this, and we might come back to that. But I I really also want to have a little bit of a look at new economy law and how that arose and what it's doing, and then that'll probably loop us back, because it feels to me that everything that you do is grounded in your sense of being part of a greater whole and and being connected to whatever it is that meets us halfway. But tell us a little bit about setting up new economy law, what it is, what it does, where it's going, how that experience has been for you. After having this experience, either at that time I could go back into work, this is the experience I mentioned in 2012, or step into something unknown and uncertain and follow this inquiry, or a living inquiry to understand and try to make my work a pilgrimage of identity. This is what uh, there's this uh, phrase that had come to me and I can't remember where it came from as a, a pilgrimage of identity to understand myself through my work so that's where i guess the the, the, the thread came through for new economy law and it started with um, so polly higgins who i mentioned she invited me um i was doing a workshop with her about how could communities protect their local environment their local ecology and safeguard their local environment and she put me in touch with a community up in scotland uh, in, in falkirk who were um, struggling against resisting uh, coal bed methane gas extraction, a form of uh, similar, very similar to fracking. This was in 2012, 13. So it was years before it came down to Balcombe and to England. Scotland was almost like the first testing ground among these very poor communities. 
they'd gone through those four phases to go through with coming towards commercial extraction of unconventional gas extraction. And in England, it never got really got beyond phase two, but uh, in Scotland, it already got to phase four. This was going to be the first commercially viable facilities. So it'd gone through all these phases. The community didn't even know this was happening. But by four, the fourth phase, suddenly it clicked, and they were now resisting it from becoming commercially, uh, commercially, it would have been the first. You know, and you can imagine... Once you've got one, it becomes a precedent for many others. So this was going to be a big fight. And Dark Energy, which was the company, got taken over by Ineos, you know, which is owned by Ratcliffe, um, who's there, yeah, the biggest, the richest person in England. So it was a huge fight. I mean, this like a dead and Goliath, this tiny community. And I, at the time, had was thinking after this workshop, love into law means building relationships through the aggression and shadows that we carry like how do we really understand this fight that we engage in and planning law i began seeing it as because i was a planning lawyer seeing it as a really crucible where all these different interests are coming together and i was like how could the community stand for itself from its values and not engage in the fight as its first step, but engage from a sense of love and care for who they are and where they live and their place. So the charter, the idea of the community charter developed from that, um, which was to start with four questions. Why did you move here? What do you want for your grandchildren? Really simple questions. What do you see in here that that gives you a sense of pleasure, happiness? And they talked about the swans. And and this was that maybe, you know, communities just don't talk to each other, you know, and, you know, we'd have... We just don't engage in that level. The people could just discuss in a free way and, and, and start to draw threads together. And we developed the Falkirk Charter from that, which set out the things that what we call the intangible assets of their community, the sense of sanctuary that the lake nearby or the pool gave by. The, all these things are intangible assets for community. And the legal hook was to call this the cultural heritage because under the Environmental Impact Assessment Directive, a project has to assess the impact of their project on its environment, uh, the water tables and the, the air, and also cultural heritage, which is normally just the, the, the hard, tangible assets. So the argument we were bringing was this impacts also upon the intangible assets, and because there's no strict definition of cultural heritage, it was enough of a hook, not to necessarily be a strong legal but it was enough of a hook to engage in the legal framework, and so to call for a public inquiry and to draw witnesses that would be witness to the impact on their sense of identity that this community was having. And then also bring other witnesses that would also try to frame this within a sense of the importance of values for sustainable development. So we began building this out and it brought in many more communities together. So it started off with just one Falkirk community and because then we were in a public inquiry, three or four more what were called community councils, adopted the charter. And this is, of course, you know, just stepping into certainty, this was not a project that I was envisaging. It was more like, again, coming from the spiritual sense of uncertainty, of not working with predict and control mechanisms, but working with uncertainty and respond to life as it unfolds, kind of yeah, this emergence. And, and so just always being aware of what's happening and, and saying this feels what needs to happen. And so drawing these communities together and then those seven communities, when it came to the public inquiry, you know, that body, the inspectorate, um, put the communities at the, as one of the main players in the, in, at the front table. So it was Falkirk Communities, um, Scottish Environment Protection Agency, Falkirk Council and the developer. 
as the four main bodies. So they began representing the whole community in a way. And then even more people came and joined. And so it was this growing sense of this real grounded body. They weren't being represented by an NGO. They weren't being represented by Friends of the Earth Scotland. They were themselves being supported to represent themselves, to represent their voice at this platform. And that sense of literacy, that sense of, you could call it a franchise, an economic franchise, the, the, the sense of agency in your life to be able to begin to make steps and not give it to another body who steps in to say, we will do it for you. That, I think, is really important. So this sense of agency that was growing in them, that, I think that was a, a, that really helped them meet their, their own councillors and tell that, you know, what it was important to them and their councillors. So it's a much smaller community as well in Scotland, far less people, so everybody kind of knows each other, I guess, to an extent. And this got then called up to the Scottish ministers. At the time when it got called up to the Scottish ministers, the referendum was happening in Scotland. And the community was like, oh, this is a done deal. The Scottish ministers have called it up because they just want to make it pass it and we're just going to lose. I said, but look, this is this is a key time. Like Scotland is now looking for a referendum to be separate from Westminster. If you say to your ministers, can you champion a different story from what's happening in Westminster? Maybe they'll take up something. Maybe they'll try to they'll see that you, the community, who they really do want to serve, want to have a different story. There was a letter that was written. I'm not saying to what impact it all had. That's what happened. You know, the, the Scottish ministers came up with, like, you know, we are going to act differently from, you know, we are going to call a moratorium. We're going to do this big public inquiry. And the communities were communicated with through that process. And through the chartering network, there was four of us at the time, we, we carried out this, what were called community-centred um, consultations. We wanted to centre the community at the centre, not just to be a consultee body where there's this normal way of carrying out consultations where the government says, you know, what what is it that you want to tell us? And then they may give you time, but not, might not necessarily listen. We wanted to give it as a, themselves a centre of their own agency, be a site of their own agency, and, and, and as the community council, hold something for themselves and then communicate it from a very not just to copy something, but to really get to a real grounded sense of what, why they were impacted. And they came up with some really incredible stories about things. Like they would say, it's not that we're against it, but why is it that these jobs are going to people from the outside of the community? Why is it coming to us as people of the community? Or where is the money actually going to? Why is it being siphoned off? We're not getting, we're not seeing any of it. So they were coming up with things that were very local and very place-based. I think that's also something that New Economy Law is about. It's about place-based understandings of our community, of our integrity. The development that centres it on our lived experience as communities, as peoples. All that grew my own understandings. This was new to me as well, being a, a lawyer that worked for TfL or, or you know, working on big projects. For me, the community was just a number of letters I would receive, thousands of letters with anger, and you're trying to just trying to uh, manage them so that it doesn't get the project manager off their direction that they want. So we want to give them what you need to do legally, but to keep you on your path. That's what my the advice that I would be giving. And now I'm learning that behind these letters is, you know, the whole soil of human experience, the whole, yeah, that whole sense that needs to be given more space and needs to be the root from which we grow rather than this abstraction. And that, that goes back to that same question I think where, where we keep abstracting and saying that is more, we privilege the abstraction over the praxis, over the lived experience, over the daily lives that we actually lead and not, don't, not give that the priv a privileging. And so new economy law, in a sense, is trying to bring, when I say new economy, when we think of economy as oikos and nomia, like our household, the management of our house, 
it's trying to say we don't we shouldn't be managing it from this abstraction. We should be managing it from who we are as humans in our home to bring in that sense of safety and care that the law should be giving. Because that was the first question, if I come back to that, with the full community. When I first went up and I was invited up, one of them, I think it was Maria, it said to me, well, why isn't the law protecting us? Why do we, and it was this plaintive, why isn't the law protecting us? It's as if they had this sense that the law was meant to be protecting them. And is that such a crazy thing to be thinking? Yes, of course, the law should be protecting us. It is, it is there. The refuge in Dharma, in, in, when we talk about the Dharma in the Buddhist tradition, the Dharma is the law, but they see it as a refuge. They see it as a place of rest. And our law does not give us rest. It, it, it takes us away from ourselves. So that sounds, there's so many angles to this, particularly that idea that as a lawmaker in planning, your job had been to make sure that the thousands of letters that people write saying, you cannot do this, don't ever actually knock the project off. I had always thought that as a person who writes the letters going, are you kidding? You can't seriously be going to do this. That actually nobody's reading them or at least nobody's ever intending to actually take any notice. So it's kind of interesting to know that that's really the case. Um, Bringing us back, can you give us a sense of how long ago this was and and how long it took? Because fracking only really hit my radar after, I think, the 2014 referendum. And it sounds like this was starting before that. For, for those outside of the UK, that's the referendum in Scotland on Scottish independence, which chose to remain with England because the frightener that was put on at the time was, if you leave the UK, then you'll have to leave the EU and you don't want to leave the EU. And look how that turned out. So anyway, Indiref 2 on its way. But give us a sense of the timeline of when this was happening and how long it took to unfold. Imagine this was 2013 when it started. So uh, this is all about the public inquiry. So this ended up in a moratorium in 2015. We carried these community-centred consultations over 2016. I think about 16 communities gave their responses and when you look at the Scottish minister's response to the community consultation which led to the ban on fracking he said the level of community engagement has been you know the responses we've had is huge and there is no social he even used the words there is no social license for fracking at this particular time because of the concerns and of course this was a, this was a general ban now Ineos then did a judicial review against that decision saying you know the, the so of course this still this decision on the Falkirk was held in abeyance while this judicial review was being carried out. That was 2017, 2018. Then the decision by the judge uh, was that the ban was uh, legal, lawful, and Ineos didn't carry out an appeal on that. So by 2020, I think it was 2020, Ineos finally withdrew its uh, application. So that was it when it won. It's not just for the community, but the whole... If that had gone through, that would have been the beginning of the commercial, like what we've seen in America, the beginning of the commercial. So that community held the burden of this. And this is another thing, because they held the burden of that, but they are not being seen. They, they, they have seen for their own for work. A lot of them went through a huge stress um, in their lives in holding that inquiry. And, uh, yeah, to, and so I just want to honour what that community went through in, in taking that upon, that burden upon them. And are you still in touch with any of these people, the ones who really fought for this? Because it sounds to me 
I can imagine it's very, very stressful. It made a huge impact on their lives. But also, you talked earlier about agency. This must have given an extraordinarily powerful sense of agency to have taken on the might of something like Ineos, to have faced down a Scottish government that sounds like it was ready to rubber stamp the planning, and to have built a sense of community that really felt like it was worthwhile. From the way you've described it, they were invited to express what it was that really mattered to them in their community, and they did so, and they were heard. And it seems to me that that's one of the steps that we all need to take in in healing the wounds of the separation, scarcity and powerlessness, the wounding of our time. So are you still in touch with anybody from that time and that place? Yeah, no, I'm still in touch with Maria and I still have little pieces of work from Maria, particularly around... Um, Again, this all goes into the land uh, reform. Um, Scotland's going through a massive land, and, and I think this is at the core of lack of agency in economic terms, going all the way back to the charge of the forest, you could say. And the charge of the forest, if people don't know, you know, it's not really talked about much, but charge of the forest came out at the same time as the Magna Carta. You know, this goes to the story of, I would say, you know, the franchise of, of equality. So Magna Carta was you know, the king having direct lineage to, to God and, and all the rules and arbitrariness coming from, from the king, but the barons then saying, we want some agency. So the Magna Carta was the beginning of an equality that put into a document this sense of the law. Even the king cannot be above the law. That's an important uh, move, step. That's why the Magna Carta is important for the Charter of the Forest is a document that came and gave rights to ordinary labourers and peasants who were working on the land and were excluded from their land where they were foraging for food, for subsistence rights, and they were starving. And so the rights of commoning, that's what came through there, the rights to forage uh, in on land um, and take wood and mal, um, building homes. So all these rights came from that. But this idea of enclosing an economic... So wood at the time was, you know, timber was the economic commodity at the time for building ships as well. So that was enclosed for the forests. And then, you know, you now have oil and gas, which is being the, uh, the the territory which is excluded and enclosed. So the charter for me is, is, is building upon this story. How do we bring and give ourselves the resources for equality and agency? And still land is a massive issue. Like land in Scotland is mostly owned by the lairds and now, there has been a big shift towards land reform in Scotland, which is very important. And so some of the stuff I'm working on in Scotland is around this land reform, um, where two of the communities are still separate, two little villages, but the land in between is looking to be developed. And they're saying they don't want that development is going to remove their identity. So it's, again, this the way in which um, authorities and authority is managed in different institutions in our, through our legal system, which privileges a particular development idea. So community is still alive. And, and, and one thing that maybe came out of that is that the community councils are working together much more. So through the Scottish Falkirk work, a lot of the community councils, um, I was representing a number of them, 17, I think 24 of them at one point. And so a few of them are still acting together in concert as a much more grounded level of political agency than, say, the district council, the Falkirk council which is still quite removed now, you could say, from that grounded level. So for me, municipalism, I think it's called, is a, is a frame that's used quite a lot. And um, 
Um, I've been working with Frances Northrup, who works with the New Economy Foundation, and she's been holding an inquiry called uh, around new municipalism. I'm wondering where this takes people who've been given that sense of agency, who perhaps have a concept of new municipalism and all that it means, and whether the politics changes in the local area. Because we were talking to Pam Barrett a week or three back, who was part of the independent group that basically took over Buckfastley Town Council and are demonstrating what can be done by an activist local group that understands the needs of the local community and actually cares about it. Because what seems quite striking when we begin to unpick things is the extent to which some people go into local politics for an easy life and a cushy number and to make political points, and some people go in actually to transform the local community. And we sound like in Falkirk, we've got a lot of people who are ready to transform the local community. And is flat pack democracy, Peter McFadden's work, is it is it reaching deep into those communities or do we still need to do some work to help spread that idea. Yeah, I, I see like with you know Peter McFadden's work and flat back democracy and the small the, the towns as being really significant to see how the economic franchise can grow, how we can begin to have economic agency over our lives or have agency over our economic lives. And I think that's really important because we've got this sense of oh the franchise is just political. It's like we've got the vote so therefore we've got a democracy. But Really, the economic franchise it never, has never really happened. We've never had this sense of agency in economic life. And we don't even think we're meant to be even having that. We just think of ourselves as employees or we've got to, you know, we've got to be subservient to something rather than sensing our agency in our lives has to be at all these different levels, ecological, economic, political. And law is where that comes through. And so how to engender the question of like revising our sense of what it means to be human so that the economic is an aspect of how we engage with each other, whether it's in our small towns as identity or in the urban landscape. And the urban landscape gets much more complex. And this is where the decolonial story comes in for me. The histories of colonialism, of Bengal culture or Indian or Caribbean, all these other cultures that come through usually in the cityscape. So find agency and centering upon these stories that are still hidden. Like I haven't really connected my own history to my life until about three or four years ago or this other thread I just saw it as a thread I needed to escape from rather than as one to move into so that's the inner oppression that has happened through a way of education that shames something in you about your own history about your own colour about that doesn't want you to even acknowledge it say we're all universal so I don't want to be talking about but we're all multicultural rather than really engaging at a, a more vulnerable level, saying, can we engage in our differences and hear and still see each other? Yeah, and that sounds almost like a whole other podcast. I would really, really like to go into your experiences of exactly that, of being told we're all multicultural, so we don't want to engage with colonialism. <laughs> and then realising that we absolutely have to engage with it and each of us has to look at where we came from to see where we might go and the vulnerabilities that that brings up. I am really in awe of the courage of your process. But we're heading, we're very nearly at the end and it feels to me that if we go down there, either we end up recording a whole second podcast now 
or we come back to it at another time. And we haven't got to Extinction Rebellion, which was what brought you to me because Jill Coombs wrote me an email and said, hey, we've got this amazing guy who set up XR Muslims. And I'd really like to know more about how you came to do that, along with new economy law and all of the other activist things that you were doing. Where did the XR strand come in? You know, I haven't even mentioned Extinction Rebellion, which has been a massive part of my life for the last uh, two years. And I've given up so much of my life to that movement because I believed in it so much. When I when it came through, actually through um, Totnes with Thrackfee Totnes and um, my work through that, somebody um, really central to it, so I mentioned it a couple of years ago, oh, there's this movement and it feels like really important uh, what it's doing. And I'm going to go and give, dedicate my life to it. And I went to a talk by him because I already trusted him. And the principles and values that by which Extinction Rebellion holds itself, the 10 principles and values, those to me felt like the orientation we need to move towards, to move towards an economic franchise that is a political economy that is orientated away from the accumulation of wealth because that is what is destroying us. And uh, in the article I wrote in Resurgence, it, it talks about that all previous civilizations have... Fo- destroyed themselves because the short-term interests unraveled the long-term interests of society. So for me, the civil society element, bringing together community at that level to say we have agency, rather than fighting just against the other, the oligarchy of authorities, it's all about strengthening our sense of civil responsibility, our sense of civil rights, um, which is what I was talking about in the article, which goes back to that whole sense of Marx called civil rights. That we don't, if we separate the individual from our community, we've already made a mistake at that very engendering level. And so, that for me is the story I'm trying to bring forth through New Economy Law and working with specific communities, but also on my personal life as well. I guess Islam for me, but spirituality shouldn't be a, a all-consuming thing. It has to be a part of your daily life as a householder. And so I'm trying to give more boundaries to myself to say what uh, that uh, there is learning to be had, not from this everything has to be sacrificed, this idea of the, the hero's journey, of, uh, which I think you know, we, we get really entranced by. But let's look for the heroine's journey too, the one that's gathering knots in the background and say, I still need to, we still need to feed each other. And I, I feel in the Eastern tradition there is something more of that collective aspect, the ordinariness of our sacredness. I love that, the ordinariness of sacredness, because I don't think the sacred is that ordinary, but I think we can make it part of our daily lives and then our daily lives become unordinary, more than ordinary, deeply, deeply unordinarily something or other. And I'm wondering, how is it that you bring that ordinariness into law, into justice, because what I'm hearing from you is that your process of law, your practice of law, is about finding fairness and bringing that. So the law does protect people, that question from Maria in Falkland, why is the law not protecting us? That you're bringing that into your life and your work and your activism. Can you say a bit about that? I think for me, yeah, it's about justice in the end. It's about what do we understand by justice. And, you know, I, I teach also um, constitutional law at a university. And um, 
that's been quite a learning for me as well, this idea of there being constitutional moments in history. And you know, when we think that England is one of three uncodified, countries with three uncodified constitutions, New Zealand and Israel, the other two, with uncodified, so they're not written down. And this, you know, the whole Brexit, the whole thing that's been around this unwritten constitution and lawyers trying to say, but this is the constitutional meaning of, of parliamentary privilege or the whole prorogation, what are the limits of prorogation, all that isn't written down. So it's like we're in this kind of flux. And But there have always been moments where, constitutional moments where something new can arise. And I'm, I feel like, wow, we're in this moment where Scotland could be leaving. What is Britain? What is, you know, what does it mean to be English? What do we want for ourselves as a country? What's the opportunity in the crisis for ourselves as ordinary human beings to come together, ask them to look at the history, the Putney debate that were happening in the 17th century when a similar moment um, that led to, you know, the parliament actually coming into existence and the, the levellers and, and, and what was lost at then at that time around um, the the movement for um, universal uh, suffrage and this idea of e- universal economic suffrage that we still haven't grasped. What can we move towards around that? But what can we do, Mothier? We have so little time left. We're heading for tipping points so fast. And if from the 7th century to now, we still haven't got anywhere near economic equity, how are we going to do it in the next decade, which is what it's going to take? It feels like we're running headfirst into a political brick wall that is just, it's a wall of will. It's a an inadequacy of vision. And the people at the top do not strike me as being particularly interested in changing the trajectory? Unless we change, unless we see that we don't need to stand back, that Parliament is there, the idea of Parliament to speak, Parley to speak, and, and, and that they are it's representative of us, the people, but the legitimacy of Parliament, of us there being representative of the people, that's the question I want to bring, because when you look at how Parliament evolved at that time, in um, around the, the time of the Levellers, there was the new model army, which was a bit similar to XR, ordinary people coming together and saying, we want something different. And the New Model Army brought something called the Agreement of the People. And the Agreement of the People was the idea of universal suffrage for everybody, laborers and people in our property. Now, the grandees who were coming up through Cromwell, who saw people coming, rising up, and said, well, we want <laughs> what was called, I can't remember the document, they put a document forward that was only giving suffrage to those with property, basically. And this idea of liberty and property being linked together at the heart of our idea of freedom is something that needs to be shifted. And we still have that power because Parliament is with us and its legitimacy is through us. And so we still have the right to question that legitimacy. If the ideas of society are that we don't need to link it in that way, let's link in a different way as to what is suffrage and what is. And we can have these questions and these debates if we can really grasp the question, if we can really grasp our own agency and autonomy in our communities together. Okay, so that's it. If we can grasp our own agency and autonomy in our communities together, then we can persuade the government that they have legitimacy because they are there to act on our behalf. We are not just the sheeple to be herded around at their whim to be allowed to die at their whim because as far as they can see, we don't serve any useful purpose. Am I cross? Yes.
But we don't need to let that flow over into the rest of the podcast. Thank you, Mathieu. We have absolutely run out of time this time. It's been so inspiring to listen to you and the journey that you've been on. And I really want to thank you for the courage of your sharing, for the courage of taking the path that you've taken. But then to come and talk about it on an open podcast feels to me huge. And I want to honour that. And thank you for what you're doing, have done, are doing, will do. And say that definitely we would like to come back for a second podcast at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. So thank you in the meantime. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Mothier for the depth of his experience and for the clarity and breadth of his thinking. It really did feel this week like we were just getting going and I would dearly have liked to have spoken for another hour. So Mothier and I have agreed that we'll come back and revisit constitutional law and the ways we could reframe our government systems once he has moved to Brighton and got settled in. So listen out for that, and if you have any questions in the meantime, you can send them to me at manda, that's manda with an M, at accidentalgods.life. We will be back next week, as ever, with another conversation. In the meantime, thank you to Caro C for making magic with sound and for our signature music. Thanks to Faith for the website and the tech stuff behind the scenes. And thank you to you for listening. If you would like to support us, we do now have a Patreon page, and there's a link on the website at accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there with links to everything that Mothier does, all the things that we think are useful, with the transcript, with all of the other show notes to all of the other podcasts, and access to the Accidental Gods membership program, which is designed to help you towards conscious evolution. And now also links to the gatherings, the courses, where we delve more deeply into the things that underpin the Accidental Gods concepts. And to the podcast, if you know of anybody else who would like to be active in creating the future that we know could be possible, then please do send them a link to the podcast. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.